said, let me uh, let me pray for you guys, and we shall begin. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. 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 Okay. No, no, no. Stop. Oh, just, stop. Just, just wait. Desist. All right. Okay, now do it. Now do it. No, yeah, move your garage bed first. It's still doing that. It's not going to work. Because when he goes on the screen, it's actually not going to work. It's not going to work. Because I've got, I've got the other screen. Don't sweat it. It's okay. Let me try one thing. One thing. Absolutely. Try it. One thing. Once he goes on the full screen, it's going to... Yeah, because I have an alternate screen. I have the Hoover here. Don't sweat it. It's okay. So Gregory can uh, oh, make out some. What? I don't think we'll do this. Well, I don't think we're going to do this. Okay. I think we'll just. So Gregory, it. you're taking notes anyway. I know you are. Just pull out your iPhone and put down the time yeah. that each one came up. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll with the second. We're going to correlate. Stop my chat. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Just laugh so every time there's a slack. So <laughs> that, that's not going to work. Right. I'm fixing it. Because that's what I have here. How cool is that? Strike two, bro. <laughs> Patience is a virtue. So you need to. It is a virtue. Each time you change the slide, sneeze. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. it. All right. Yeah, just make Thank it. you. So All right. What's happening? Well, door by door. Now, um, our let's see. One, two, still three, and four. When we use Hebrew here for these men, you must turn your head, say to the guy next to you. What we're saying in Hebrew, if you don't know, turn your head the other way and find out, then tell the other guy. So, la door by door? Generation. All right. So, what's happening in these generations? I'm going to try and make history relevant um, because uh, Gregory and I were talking, and it seems that as a result of our recent presidential election, um, the response of, of many believers has been to just talk about, you know, where are we going to live now? Since we can't live here, where are we going to go? Well, let's go to Switzerland. Or my father-in-law wants to go to Iceland. Oh! <laughs> yeah. So, I don't think that's a good response, and I don't think it's the proper response. So, what we're going to do tonight is look at a better response and question where we've been. So, here are the symptoms that we're dealing with. Uh, traditional morality is certainly vanishing. We see that all around us. Um, I would say, mostly with the way I see most women dressed. Uh, the value of life is diminishing, not just because of what we see with abortion and the taking of innocent life, um, but the fact that someone will kill you on the street without even thinking about it. And you've got people going into movie theaters and whatnot and taking life. Strange new culture is emerging, and the culture that I'm seeing is um, dramatically different than the one I 
in which I grew up. And I'm a hermit. You guys are out much more than I am. I go out maybe once a week. And when I do, I'm going to places I've already been. People know me. You see people that you've never seen before. You live out there in the world. I'm a hermit. And I already see it. So you must be seeing it. Half the populace is looking to the government for, I think the word, the technical term I heard on the radio was stuff. <laughs> but I'm, I'm older than, in fact tonight, I'm older than everyone. But I know there's at least too many here that grew up in the same era as me. And our parents weren't looking for a handout from anybody. And even a hand up, as they say, was hard to take. You just fended for yourself, you did what was necessary, and you worked your buttocks off in order to make it happen. I remember the Reagan era. How many of you remember the Reagan era? Were you old enough to remember the Reagan era? I know two, that he died. Two guys. <laughs> I know that he died too. I, I had really hoped that you would know more about this. In, in that time, this is, by the way, from 1980 to 1988, he was the president of these United States. Um, but, but Democrats in our country actually caught the vision. They were excited. Mm -hmm. This guy was cool because he was a movie star. And because he was a movie star, I, I mean, he wasn't really a movie star. I mean, I never saw any movies he was in because <laughs> they were really bad. I mean, what was it, Bonzo and something or other? Do you remember? Yeah, Bonzo goes to the movies or something like that. I mean, you know, it's bad. But he knew how to deal with the camera. And he knew how to use 30-second sound bites. He was extraordinary. But the Democrats caught the vision that he had. And he made patriotism cool. It was really neat to be a patriot. You wanted to be a patriot back then. Um, it, was, it was a neat time. And I'll give you an example. I've told the story several times before, if you've heard it. It's kind of left long, so I feel like it's so good anyway. Um, but for those of you who haven't heard, um, there was a, this was in the middle of Cold War, and uh, yeah, he was he was always getting razzed in the in the media because he was so old. I mean, he was like seventy eight when he was the president. I mean, he was a really old guy, and he was you know wrinkly and all. And uh, at one point, uh, some Russian MIGs came into our airspace, and our fighter pilots, you know, met them at the border of the airspace, you know, and, you know, kind of gave them the thing you see in the movies where, you know, you got to turn around because you just entered American airspace, that kind of deal. And one of the MiGs didn't. And our Air Force jack went and took the MiG out. Not a time of war. He just took the MiG out. Well, the, the media, the democratic, liberal media, was incensed that they didn't wake the president up. So the next morning in the White House, they got a press conference. So, Mr. President, we understand that the, uh, they didn't wake you up when uh, this altercation with Russia happened and we almost went into world war and all that. You know, and he's just, he's just like laughably, he's like, well... Had our boys been taken out, that would have been something to wake me up for. <laughs> but when the good prevails over the evil, it's really something you can sleep through. 
And, you know, the whole press corps is laughing, and they're like, well, of course they didn't wake him up. We won. You know, and they got it. They got it. It was, it was a neat time. Lowering taxes stimulated growth, and the economy took off. And guys, what we just went through with the recession that we had during the Bush era, that actually was the end of the prosperity that President Reagan began back in the 80s. Life was worth living, and people were generally happy. That's what I remember. And I was old when that happened. That can happen again. But I'm convinced that King Solomon was right. And we just repeat what we've already done. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Shlomo HaMelech. Good. Good. All right. So what I'd like to do is look at some history. I know everybody's going to grow. Um, but we're going to look at... No, yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thank you. That's my son-in-law. Bite Cheney. Second temple. Second temple. Cheney. Second. Bite, we say this instead of bait. Bait is house. We say it is bite. We're talking about the temple, just to kind of set it apart. So it would be so Bite Cheney. Second that, temple. That picture. That. Uh, it, is, it is these stones, yeah. yes, but... By Cheney is this half of this wall. You have the uh, floor wall thing. Right? So we're going we're gonna to do the walls real quick. The men of the Great Assembly begin at the middle of this wall. They're the ones that are quoted when we... What's our practice? Uh, when we're done with Pesach, and then we count the oh, Omer, no. and we count for 49 days, and then the next day is... Shavuot, or Pentecost, meaning 50, 49 plus 1, right, 50 days. But then from Pentecost, or Shavuot, until we get to Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, what do we do? What do we read Shabbat afternoon? The Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, right? And when we begin reading, we're reading from the men of the Great Assembly. These are the guys that came out of the Babylonian exile, and stepped up and made it all happen. These are like Ezra and Nehemiah and these kind of folks, all right? And then we're going to talk about the Zugot. Zugot? Pairs. The pairs, right? So we had two guys that was the uh, work together to be the head of the Sanhedrin, all right? So we're going to talk about this. So before we go on, let's go ahead around the room. Uh, if I start with this corner being today... I've got a tzaddik, righteous man. a righteous man in every corner. So um, I've got today, and I back up a thousand years per wall. So a thousand years, I'm looking at this corner, and who's there? Rashi. Rashi. He's the first guy who did line-by-line line commentary on the entire Torah, and then line-by-line line on the entire Tanakh when he was already old. He had no sons. And Mishnah. And the Mishnah. Line by line. Line by line. Unbelievable. He had no daughters. He had no sons. He had only daughters. That's but what we'll, line by line will do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but his daughters married godly men who became some of the greatest men and sages of Israel. Tremendous. 
absolutely awesome. When you put a mezuzah on your doorpost, do you put it straight up or do you put it horizontal? Oh, oh you put it halfway. Yeah. Why? Because of Tom. Rashi's son-in-law? Rabbeinu Tom was Rashi's son-in-law, and he said it should be horizontal. Rashi said it should be straight up and down, so we put it halfway to honor both men. Rabbeinu Tom was his son-in-law. Unbelievable. All right, so Rashi, we back up another thousand years. Who's the tzaddik in this corner? Yeshua. 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 Because when we get to this corner a thousand years earlier, David Hamelik. We don't just say David. We say David the king. So if you're going to say Yeshua, say Yeshua the Messiah. All right, so David HaMelech, another thousand years, and I've got Avraham Avinu, Abraham, our father. Another thousand years, and I've got Noach, not Noah, that's female in Hebrew. Noach. And then a thousand years earlier, and we have the first study. Adam Rishon, the first Adam, Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, Yeshua, Rashi, and you. Right? All right. So we're going to look at this wall between King David and Yeshua, and we're looking at the second half. All right? Everybody clear? It should look something like this. So in a thousand, we have Shaul HaMelech. Saul the king, right? King Saul, David. We've got Shlomo, his son. And then we've got a divided kingdom. Okay? So we've got the northern ten tribes, the lower two tribes. We've got Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah. We've got these three, six, nine, twelve guys are the Treasar. They're the twelve minor prophets. Minor because their message was lesser? No, because they were Minor because... Books the books were shorter. It's all laid off. It's all it is, right? So we've got 12 and we've got 6. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Elisha, right? Okay, so good. Then we've got, unfortunately, the exile of the northern tribes to Assyria. And Assyria, right after that, was grabbed up by Babylonia. Exactly right. And then finally, unfortunately, we've got the southern tribes going to exile to the same people, Babylonia. Why did they get kicked out? Why did they get kicked out? Because they didn't let the land rest. They didn't let the land rest. And more fully, they failed to keep the commandments of God. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We're going to look at Malachi shortly here. But eventually, we get as the beginning of this is the first temple period. We get into the second temple period down here. Um, we've got Aliyah from Bavli. Aliyah, we're coming back. We're going up to Jerusalem and up to Israel. And we come from Babylonia, right around the middle of the wall. 500, we've got a silent period there. And that's where we've got this transition from the men of the great assembly to the Zugot. And not a lot do we know about that. We know about some of the men. And I'm going to give you some of the men. I'm actually going to give you the last guy tonight. I'm going to give you the first guy. Okay? So it's in this period right in here. Alexander conquers the entire world. The Septuagint, the people 
in Bavli, not real good at Hebrew anymore, just like us perhaps. Present company excluded, of course. And uh, so they asked for the Torah to be written down in Greek. In Greek, exactly right. I think a big mistake, but it happened nonetheless. Very helpful resource. It is a uh, Rosetta Stone, as it were, for us <laughs> to go from the apostolic writings back into the Torah and do some work comparisons. Antiochus Epiphanes, and we've got that uh, whole, gosh, Hanukkah's coming. I don't want to steal the thunder. I'm hoping one of you is going to get up and teach about Hanukkah in the next couple of weeks, and then the uh, Maccabean Revolt, of course. And then we've got an unbelievably robust time as we look at a very concentrated corruption of the whole system that God set up that was in place over there. We've got a problem with the priesthood. We've got a problem with people in the priesthood or claiming priesthood that shouldn't be. We've got kings that ought not to be king. And we've got the last pair, because we started with pairs over here, Hallel and Shammai. As soon as Hallel died, the last of the pairs, the man who loved Gentiles and wanted to bring them to God and to the Torah, as soon as he died, Mashiach stepped up on the scene. And then we begin the Talmudic period on this wall. So that's what we're going to talk about. Questions? We good? All right. So we've got change in about 600 before the Common Era. This is zero. 500 is the middle of the wall, just past the middle of the wall. We've got the temple has been destroyed and the people are exiled. We're, we just saw that, right? Prophecy ends with Malachi. Now, I know you hear a lot of weird stuff about that in the church, depending on your preference, depending on your uh, particular denomination. Um, you may believe that prophecy still continues. I have a word from the Lord for you. Okay. Love to hear that word. Is it because? No. Okay. My take on it is what the sages of Israel have said. Malachi, Malachi, was the last prophet. That time of prophecy in general was over. Can God still speak to a man and have him give prophetic utterance? Absolutely. We see it in the apostolic writings. Agabus is probably the best guy. Goes down on his own dime, hits the beach, grabs Paul's belt, pulls it off him, wraps his arms in it, and falls down to his knees and says, in the same way that I'm bound by this, the guy who owns this belt is going to be that way. Do you think he made that up? No, it's prophecy. So, are there prophetic utterances? Absolutely, Paul talks about it, for sure. Is there an era of prophecy where God is going to say what's going to happen? I think we already have the book, guys. Yes, sir. I personally had a hard time with people of our, let's just say century area around here, who say, oh, well, I've, I've had a calling from God, or I've, I've, God spoke to me, and I have been told to do this. Yeah. And there's a gentleman in the room, who I won't mention his name, but he said it in a very perfect way. <laughs> said... What makes you think you're so special? There were only a handful of prophets that we were ever written about. 18 that we know of. What makes you think you're so special in this three, 4,000, 5,000-year period that you are worthy of being a prophet? Exactly. I, I don't want to... I, I want to be clear. God can and does speak to all of us. Audibly, let's talk. 
fact that he's giving you prophetic utterance for a large group of people, can he do it? Absolutely. No question about it. Do I think that's the norm? Absolutely not, and I think the scripture bears that out. On, on the issue of the 18 prophets that are laid down in the book. And we have at least a half a dozen or more that are mentioned right. that haven't even, didn't get their own book. But according to, according to the, the discussion in the Talmud, there were tens of thousands of prophets in Israel, you know, throughout this kind of, this time period. Um, and the question is, well, if there were that many prophets, why did we only have 18 in, in the book? And the answer is because the other thousands of prophets that prophesied were only prophesying something that only had relevance to the generation or the community they were speaking to at the time. Whereas the 18 prophets that are in the book, their prophecies have relevance not just to the generation they lived in, but to all generations subsequent to them. And that's the, that is the distinction with the level of inspiration, let's call it that, um, for the prophets that we have in the recording in the Tanakh. Excellent. And I would, I would dovetail with that to say the reason why they had this near prophecy as well as a far-reaching prophecy is because, by and large, they were prophesying about Messiah. The whole book is about our Messiah. These people were speaking about the Messiah. So what they were saying was either about his first coming or his second coming. Yes, sir. Um, in addition to uh, one teaching from Judaism that I heard from Rabbi Gimpel and his lessons on Joshua, which you can listen on their website, um, uh, forgive me if I get all of the exact specifics a little bit off, but basically there's, there's variations in prophecy. And Moses is, is held up as the highest level because he spoke face-to-face -face with God. The next level is like this dream state that we see with the 18. Envisions. Um, envisions and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, I think there's actually ends up being like four levels, but the lowest level is actually the one that probably people, if you do experience any sort of interaction with God, are most commonly going to be familiar with today. And it's almost like sort of like that inclination level. Not necessarily a voice, not necessarily a dream or a vision, but it's like there's this sort of sense from God about this or that. It's like essentially God uses your mind and your what you know, your experience, to sort of convey a message as it were. I feel impressed to say, right? Exactly. Led. I, I feel led to say, I normally turn right at this corner, but I, I, I feel led to turn left today. Not saying now, that's always personally, God. <laughs> I know that God has done that with me. I know. And the longer you walk with the Lord, you begin to be able to discern a piece of indigested beef that didn't work out well versus the voice of God. I know he does speak to us. So I'm not trying to dissuade you from believing that in a way. But an era where there are an overwhelming number of people that can prophesy. And Paul even speaks that he knew what that was like. Different so the remnant returns from Babylon, unfortunately, as we've seen in, uh, in one of our uh, 
favorite rabbis who comes to America to uh, proclaim to the visible church that this move towards Torah is a sign of the end times. He also speaks to Jewish communities and wonders why they're still here in America and not back in the homeland that we now have. This remnant that returned was very small. In fact, most of the people actually stayed in Babylon. They had an opportunity to be free. They had an opportunity to be living where God had promised them, and they chose not to come home. That's unfortunate, but they did recur return uh, to rebuild the temple. And it took a while, and it took a good kick in the fanny. That's, that's a biblical term. Check that out. Um, in order to do so. Punch the puppet. That's right. <laughs> The, uh, the men of the great assembly are the men of which we read with Nehemiah, Nez, uh, Nehemiah Ezra, um, calling the people to start to read the Torah again, and uh, Tzadok and some of these other men. So we're going we're gonna to look at that. And then, uh, of course, we've got this new culture of Hellenism. We know that it was probably about here on the wall that Alexander conquered the known world. But that was when he finished not when he started, right? So he was only 30 years old when he, 30, 32, whatever it was, when he conquered the known world. But Hellenism and the Greek mindset and army had been coming for a long time. So, at any rate, that's the change that was going on and started in about 600 uh, before the Common Era. Mishnah Avot. This is in the Mishnah. And, uh, Avot. Fathers. Fathers, right? Okay. Um, we read that from the elders to the prophets, and the prophets transmitted it to the men of the great assembly. These are the guys that got it. Um, we read in the Mishnah that uh, there was a corrupt priesthood. And we read in the scriptures that it was criticized by Nehemiah and Ezra. Now, if you haven't read that, we'll get you back home and read Nehemiah and Ezra, and you'll see it. Baitshini, we've got, as we begin this second temple period, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the men of the great assembly. So that's what Mishnah Avot tells us, because the concept is, if you're not familiar with it, that Moses received the written Torah on the mountain, and the oral Torah, how to keep, generically, the written Torah, and he passed it on to Joshua. And Joshua passed it on to the judges, and they named them by name, and they pass, you know, and, da, 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 and they can name every guy. It's like when you're watching Criminal Minds or some kind of crime show on television, and you've got to have that chain of evidence, and you can name, and it's written down, everybody who touched this stuff, they can do that, from Moses to today. So, that's important stuff. So, we've got assignments that are given in the Torah. Moshe wrote this law and gave it to the priests. What's their job? The sons of Levi, who have carried the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem into all the elders of Israel. It's the priest's job to teach this Torah, these instructions to the people. You see that in Deuteronomy, Devarim 31.9. They, Levi, shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your Torah to Israel. That's their job. How'd they do Next. Yep. Evidently, Deuteronomy 
it was a disappointment. We've got a hopeful note in Jeremiah 18, 18. Surely instruction is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Couldn't be. That would never happen, right? But then we see in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 26, this heavy sigh. He will seek a vision from the prophet, but instruction will be lost from the priest and counsel from the elders. Wow. Now, this class is called a tzaddik class, the class of righteous men. It's not that you're on your way to being righteous. You are righteous if you're keeping the commandments. I'm not talking about the, the righteousness that will gain you a place in the world to come. You can't attain that, right? We, we all understand that? You cannot do that. It's the grace of God and the righteousness of Messiah. That's what gets you into the world to come. Faith in his work, period. However, there's an expectation on the part of God that you will walk righteously on this planet. You are commanded to be righteous. You need to do the commandments. You need to be obedient. These guys got an instruction. They were to be the teachers. They were to teach the people how to keep the commandments of God. Now when they came out of this exile, why did they get exiled? Why did they get kicked out of the land? Not keeping they didn't keep the commandments. So what did they come back with? They're all over the commandments. I mean, they are not going to get kicked out again for not keeping the commandments. Oh, you're nuts. You want me to give No, 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 no. Break this out? I'm not going to break that one. No, no, no. We're not getting kicked out from my account. So, they restore the Torah. We find that these people that came back had been assimilated into pagan culture. They were completely estranged from the Torah. They were only out for 70 years, but that's a whole generation. It's gone. We've got an alienated Jewish society. And Nehemiah writes, In those days, I actually saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain. He just had no clue. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of this when I talk to my friends who are in the church. They have no clue. And I'm not talking down about them. I'm truly concerned about them, as Nehemiah was. And I think Nehemiah is a great example for us with regard to the people. There's only one difference. Nehemiah was in charge. Nehemiah was the guy. He was the guy that could close the gates and go, whoa, 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 we're not doing that. You can't do that to your friends who are in the church. But when you go to church with them, I beg your pardon, we are the church. When you go to the church building with them, and you have a worship service, and at the end of the worship service, they smack you on the back and say, Let's go get some lunch. And then when I go out to lunch, it should be just like me and mine. I'm actually shocked that they want to go spend money on the Sabbath. Assuming your, your worship service was happening on Saturday. Well, I, I was just going to say, <laughs> you know, if they're on Sunday, it's not a problem. But most of them are treating Sunday like it's the Sabbath. So it's just all whacked out. 
And then you'll go to some Torah communities that talk about the Torah, but don't keep the Torah. Same kind of deal. It's a very difficult situation. It's, it's interesting because there are some, uh, you, you only find them in, if you find them, you only find them in elderly Christians. But there are some older Christians who had a halakha about how to observe the Lord's day. Amen. That except for the fact that it's the wrong day. It was just like this app. Like they would not cook, they would not shop, they wouldn't I mean all of this very similar halakha. Exactly. But it was just Sunday. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's my point. Um and, and so it's amazing that there are strains of Christianity that had a very similar practice but had just gotten yeah. the day wrong. So just as a as a, a quick aside um, how late, this is zero, that's 2000, how late do you suppose it was that you had Gentiles, Gentiles, that were keeping the Sabbath and being persecuted by the Catholic Church? How late? It's 500? 400? 700. Anybody later? 700 years. After Messiah, Council of Nicaea, Council of Trent, Council of you know, all those. It's in the three and the four hundred. Seven hundred years later, still keeping the Sabbath, just like the Master did. When I grew up, probably when you grew up, we had blue laws. You walk into a store, and you could buy nails, but you couldn't buy the hammer. You could buy screws, but you couldn't buy a screwdriver. Certainly couldn't buy alcohol. alcohol. You certainly couldn't buy alcohol. <laughs> Holy cow. Alcohol. You love it. That's right. Yeah. Even in the colonies, during the... 1700s here in America, it, uh, a, a shop owner could be fined or arrested if he was caught opening his, his shop on Sunday. Exactly. I mean, it, it was an amazing thing. So, yes. I was actually going to, something like that. Yeah, exactly the same. 1776, they would actually have a guy who would walk yeah. around and look here into the store. Is anybody working? No, yeah. okay, continue. Yeah. That's not they, they would just watch chimneys. Yeah. If they saw smoke, uh, then they Something's wrong. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the blue laws seem to be ridiculous when I was a boy. I couldn't understand. We'd go into the store, you could buy anything you want, but when you got up to the cash register, you realize you couldn't buy everything. There were only certain things. See, you could buy the nails. Because if you had your own hammer, you paddle your own canoe. But sell you the hammer to do the labor? Not on the Lord's day. No, sir. So, that's, that's what these guys, the men of the Great Assembly, inherited. What did they do with it? It's from these guys that we live today. Ezra probably single-handedly saved quote-unquote Judaism. Amen. Uh, it, 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 I mean, and Judaism prior to the Galut Babli wasn't Judaism the like it was like today. <laughs> we'll edit that one out. <laughs> but, but Ezra, Ezra is, is really the guy to thank He's that, we, that we are where we are today. Yeah, I, I want you to know two things about Ezra. Number one, um, the prayers that we pray today when we are doing the, the uh, shakari prayers and so forth, these were laid down by him and the men of the Great Assembly. They were started by him. You want to get 
a really good encouragement in your walk? You want a standard that you can walk by? You want to look for a hero of the faith? You do not need to go to the local Christian bookstore and find you know, these little paperbacks on Hudson Taylor and some of these other guys. You open up your Bible. You read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And in both places, you will find character descriptions about Ezra that will make your mind go, wow. Because this guy was unbelievably top shelf. What was, from the men of the great assembly, the absolute number one thing they came up with? Uh, building a fence around the tower. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Make a protective fence around the tower. Do you know what that means? Who's the first guy to do that? say God. Adam? Adam? I would say Adam. Adam. Yeah. Yeah. I would say Adam. Why would I say Adam? Because Eve misquoted the commandment. Eve, Eve misquoted to the devil what they were allowed and not allowed to do. And apparently the only place she could have gotten that was from her husband, who's the one who actually received the Torah. What's Torah mean? Instruction. Instruction or teaching. So the instruction came from God to Adam. Was Eve there? I got a no. no. I got a no. I got two no's. Unclear. How do know. you know? I think that's blurry. How is it blurry? Was all the instruction delivered before or after he lost a rib? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> was this boneless guy talking, being talked to by God before or after he gave up the ball? And the answer is yes. We don't know. But <laughs> well, it appears that she wasn't even in existence. It, it, it did say it's not good for man to live alone. So apparently he was living. So apparently some time elapsed from the time he was created to the time he created Eve. So yeah. I would imagine that God would have said to Adam before time elapsed that, hey, don't go near that tree. You can, you can eat from this. You can't even, he had to eat, right? Right. So the whole eating thing was given. At any rate, because Eve's quotation of what they may or, or could or could not, may or may not have done, Mate. may not Mate. Mate. and may not have done, was a little off. We do, we do understand that it's probable that God said, of every tree of the garden you may eat, but of the tree that's in the middle of the garden you may not eat. All of this I give you for food, but that one's not for food. What did Adam say to Eve? Presumably something along the lines of, don't even touch it! Don't touch it! Don't, don't even go near it! Don't touch it! He, uh, told, he gave the instruction in the next verse. He started into the man should not be alone. So the instruction was given like, immediately. It, it appears that it's before while man was still alone. Absolutely. That's, that's my opinion. But And to make a slight clarification here, because the fence that Adam made apparently didn't work very well. Eve did end up eating the fruit. So the sages, one of the things that they have done is particularly brilliant is they made fences, but they did a pretty good job of not forgetting that they were fences. One of the mistakes that Eve makes is she misquotes God. She turned, she 
perceive the fence as being the commandment. Yeah. Oh. Not, but in generally speaking, like I know even today, if you will read some of the sages, they'll say, this is Torah, this is actually this from is the Torah, law. and this it's is rabbinic. In other words, this is a fence we made just in case so you don't break the Torah, but it is rabbinic. And I, and, I, and I think a good point to make for those who are listening from afar, especially people who live in Gastonia, is that only people who are doing what we do know that the sages say that. Because they're taught in the church building that the rabbis have all these extra commandments and they've ignored the Torah. They're not taught that the rabbis are actually very specific about this is what the Torah says and this is what the rabbis say so that we will not violate the Torah. Why do we light candles 18 minutes before sundown? So we don't light, so we don't light a candle, sunset? we don't light a fire during the Sabbath. Yes. And I think there's another category as well as there's a Torah command that's explicit, there's a rabbinical command that's protecting it, and then there's a uh, for example, and the reason why I said God at first is because you go to Jeremiah chapter 17 where God's chastising people for carrying burdens on the Sabbath, but you cannot point at an explicit verse in the Torah at all. But God thus says the Lord, the prophet says. So, so there's, there's commandments that are implied and there's an understanding that there has to have been dots connected somewhere. And, and back to our men of the great assembly with Nehemiah and Ezra. They knew it. Right. And they got it from Exactly. So, clearly, if you're looking for, can we buy or sell on the Sabbath? Where do you get that from? Can you give me a Torah verse? You can give me a Tanakh verse, but you can't give me a Torah verse. Because it comes from the Tanakh. It came from these men of the Great Assembly. Exactly. Good job. Um, the, the famous uh, Sermon on the Mount, Messiah, I would argue, was doing what any good rabbi does. He was laying down fences. He said, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. But barely I say, don't even lust. What is that? That's a, that's a fence. That's a great fence. Because if you don't lust, you're not going to actually violate the biblical Amen. commandment, right? Amen. So, um, so when we see Yeshua in his own teaching um, it, uh, applying this concept in the way he, he taught. And that does, isn't it cool that a, a carpenter is a fence builder? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that dovetails neatly to also point out that even though the sages do teach that some commandments are Torah and some are rabbinic, they still recognize rabbinic as binding and authoritative. Now, I think there may be some cases maybe where there's some dispute over some of the rabbinic and there's maybe some room to change them over time, but generally speaking, they treat rabbinic in terms of practice almost as seriously as the Torah case. Absolutely, and, and shouldn't we? Generically, shouldn't we? I mean, if you think about a community, how, how, do, you, how do you regulate how people are doing? How, how do you help a brother if you can't in some way Hold him to a standard. What is that standard? Right, and, and, and yet even in the Talmud, you have a there are certain rabbinic violations that are not really punishable; they're just chastisable. But exactly. every Torah commandment, to a certain extent, is punishable. You bet. And and I think if you spend any time reading the Talmud, you know that the Talmud is nothing but 
you know, we're talking about this particular command, and Rabbi so-and-so said this. But Rabbi so-and-so said this. Well, which is it? Well, he's got a good point. Well, he's got a good point. Well, they can't both have good points, can they? Well, yeah. Well, you know, so-and-so said this, and that's against what we're talking about. Ah, you know what? It was a very special case when he said that, and we know that this happened, so he was uh, consistent with the whole day. That's the tongue. That's it, right? I mean, that's the whole idea. <laughs> is, is here we are, let's, let's talk about how we're going to keep these commandments. An amazing thing to me is that the Talmud, while turned into this somewhat evil book, an extra biblical, oh my goodness, don't read it kind of thing, you'll go blind by someone in the Christian community, it is, is actually nothing more than how can I best walk the walk of faith? And give me some examples of great men of faith before me. How did they do it? And what did everybody think about what they did? I, to me, I think that's a that's a pretty good mini series that we ought to check out. Okay. If you remember, I'm trying to tie the, the history to what's going on today, um, because I think our response to the presidential election has been poor, and uh, we could should have a a better uh, response. So let me tell you about the first and the last. This is. The last guy in the men of the great assembly, Simeon the Just. And I'm quoting, great among his brothers and the glory of his people. This guy was top shelf. He was a, he was a high priest, high priest for 40 years. He's a great man of God. So he's one of the last survivors of the men of the great assembly. After him, you got the Zuga. You with me? So we talk about the last guy in the great, great assembly, and then the first guy in the Zuga. All right. So Simeon the Just, what a guy! When I write a vote one two, what what in the world is that? What is that? Where can I read that? What is that? It's, it's, in, the the Mishnah, Mishnah, it's in the Mishnah, right? What's what's first the Mishnah? Mishnah? Second verse. What, what is the Mishnah? The Mishnah is the oral tradition. Redacted, 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 redacted. by uh, Yehuda over here. Judah about, Prince. A uh, hundred or so common era. And um, it, is, it is essentially what we have of the oral Torah that had been passed down. It, the oral Torah, by definition, was never intended to be written. But by the time we get to Yehuda, we're being kicked at, you know, the temple had been, second temple had been destroyed, uh, were being thrown out of the land by the, the Romans or killed, and uh, we were already starting to forget some of the details of the oral tradition. So Yehuda felt obligated to redact it and put it in writing in order to preserve it. So glad that he did. And Tractate Avot is, um, is, is the sayings of the Father. And this is the beginning of what we read when we're reading the Pirkei Avot. So, let's make clear. If somebody says the Mishnah is the Oral Torah, that's really not true. It's the best we have 
of a written example of the oral tradition that was passed down and we can name all those books. Okay? So, Simeon said, the world is sustained by three things. The Torah, the temple service, and deeds of loving kindness. Now let's go around the room. I want you to argue. How did Simeon do? Feel free to quote from the apostolic scriptures. I think all things are held together by Messiah. By Messiah, who is the living Torah. The Torah. It's sustained by the Torah. What was at the beginning of the world, at the foundation of the world, before all things, was the Torah. Okay. Simeon. Check on number one. Temple service. Hmm. What do you think of the simster on the temple service? Well, are we talking about the sacrifices, or are we talking about like the worship that went on in the, the temple? Or are we talking about both? Well, I, I want to be clear that when you say that to me, I go, huh? Those animal sacrifices are the worship that went, went on inside the temple. Now, the Levites would be singing, but the priests would be killing, but God would be grinning. <laughs> Write it down. It'll preach. Trust me. So, do you think that the world is sustained by temple service? And if so, why? If you don't think so, tell me why. This is the interactive portion of our discussion. I think yes. You think yes, <laughs> that the world is sustained by the temple service? Because the, the uh, activities that went on in the temple service... Uh, the atonement that was made by the various sacrifices absolutely acted as a form of preservation not only for an individual person bringing an individual sacrifice but there were sacrifices that were made on behalf of the nation and on behalf of the nations in fact mm -hmm. there is an understanding with respect to the festival of Sukkot where during the seven days of Sukkot, we sacrifice a total of 70 bulls. 70 is a major one, number. One bull for each of the 70 biblical nations. Yeah. Chazal say... Chazal. Chakamenu and Zechronam Did anybody hear what he said? Chakamenu, Zechronam, Livracha. Our sages of blessed memory. Our sages of blessed memory. Write that down. It's an acronym. And it's plural. If you're going to study the sages, get used to acronyms. That's right. So Hazal teach that had the Gentile nations understood the great blessing that Israel um, provided them through the sacrifices that were being made um, on their behalf, they would have never destroyed the temple. Amen. Point of view, if the human body is like is like a temple, because you are a soul, you have a body. Soul is like the uh, Shekinah type of picture. Then um, you know, flip that into the concept of well, if if either one of them are gone, then there's no what type of sustenance is there? Right? If I want to draw near to the physical presence of God, 
and I want my life to be sustained, what must I do? But also, I mean, his slight variation here, argue maybe not so much sustained by, but perhaps sustained for. Um, certainly the sages do definitely teach that, it, that the world was essentially created so that Israel could receive the Torah. Um, and then, sort of dovetailing off of that, the temple service was intended almost to recreate the Garden of Eden um, in the sense that we had the physical presence of God in our midst. And the only way to enter that was through the, the sacrifices. So, the um, in a sense, then, God's plan for creation, you know, in between the two bookends of Garden of Eden, Messiah's reign, well, actually, you know, the world to come, that whole massive 6,000-year block, 7,000-year block in between there was, was really about Torah and temple service. Amen. Not to mention that a big chunk of the Torah, which in the first point is temple service, and the second chunk is deeds of love and kindness. So it's kind of you know, circular. And there is, well, if if I mean, if Paul says in Rome in First uh, Corinthians thirteen, if if you don't have love, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's worthless. It's just a bunch of noise. It's a paraphrase. Work. I don't think it's anything. How would you sum up? All the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How can I love the Lord my God other than the way he said that's temple service? And how can I love a man as myself without deeds of loving kindness? Where do I find these two in the Torah? Or in the Messiah. Amen. I was going to say, um, for the deeds of loving kindness or loving someone as thyself is in Ephesians where um, Jesus is saying to um, I guess I think it was love everyone as Jesus loved the church or my yeah, yeah. Loving, loving your wife the whole couple yeah. Yeah. You, you know well, you the should. way the way I love my wife is the way that Messiah loved the church or the way I should right exactly right yeah. well Yeshua said in one instance, Yeshua quoted Leviticus uh, 15, I think it is. Uh, 19. 19. 19. 19. Thank you. Uh, and said, you know, he, and, and said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Then, and then in another instance, Yeshua said, love your neighbor as I have loved you. Which, um, in it's one sense, ever so slightly which above. in one sense is kind of almost like another. Uh, well, I don't know if I'd call it a fence per se, yeah. but it's up, upping the ante because the fact of the matter is, uh, and this is really true in our day and age, loving your neighbor as you love yourself is really not a high standard. Not anymore. Because many of us aren't particularly fond of ourselves, um, so. But to love your neighbor as Yeshua loved you, well, what did he do? He laid, he voluntarily laid his life down, unconditionally. So that now becomes yeah. the standard. I, I think if you look at his other statement about, you know, you know, a man may lay down his life for his friends, but to lay down his life for his enemies is really over the top. 
you know, when we look at our neighbors today, a lot of times they're not our friends. You know, good fences make for good neighbors. So, anyway, so good. I, I think we've got some extraordinary commentary coming from Simeon the Just. Who can tell me what the Tosefta is? Nobody knows what the Tosefta is? Aramaic uh, commentary. Commentary, uh, translation, pseudo, NIV type thing. Yeah. A Mid-Eastern hors d'oeuvre. A Mid-Eastern hors d'oeuvre. Thank you, sir. <laughs> it's an Aramaic translation of the Tanakh. So in the Tosefta, you've actually got these things that were said that happened while Simeon the Just was alive. The western lamp in the temple was perpetually lit. The altar fire was perpetual. The Torah says you've got to throw wood on it every morning. And then you got to make sure it stays burning. It's got to burn all night long. Because I mean, you're constantly throwing more meat on it, and you got to burn up the meat. And at the end of the night, you got to make sure that it burns all night long to get rid of everything. But they didn't have to put wood on it, except one time in the morning. And that wood burned all day long. The showbread inside the temple was blessed. At the end of the week, when they're supposed to take it out and swap it, they pass it around to the priests and the Levites. And the Tosefta says that sometimes a priest would take just an, a, an olive piece, and others would take more than an olive piece, and they would have leftovers. Because it would go through the entire priesthood, almost like that miracle that the Master did a couple of times, where he just never ran out. They say all this stopped when Simeon the Just passed away. Who does that sound like? Sarah. Sarah. It sounds like Sarah. What the rabbis say about Sarah, right? I mean, while she was alive, the the, the right the the, the tent uh, windows, the, the sides of the tents were always open because it was all the hospitality stuff and the, the chal. What was it? The, the, the lights of. Shabbat. Shabbat the, the Shabbat candles lasted the whole week long. That's some serious candles. Or uh, the challah. You know, she'd make challah, and it would be good for the rest of the week. And they'd always have challah. And the Shekinah was over in her tent. Over her tent. Exactly right. So what's uh, what's this Y Yoma deal? Y Yoma 9 What's that mean? What's the Y? Yoma Yushalayim. The Talmud. It's the Talmud. It's the Jerusalem Talmud, or Yerushalmi Talmud. It's not the Babylonian or the Bavli, which is the most common, right? So in Yoma 9a, it tells us that Simeon the Just was high priest for 40 years. That's impressive. It, it tells a story about uh, when he prolonged his prayer. You're familiar with what happens on Yom Kippur? High priest goes in. I mean, it's the only time he can go in it, right? One time a year, he's going to go behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant is, right? He's going to stick his arm in there first with that altar, of, with that incense thing, right? He's going to make sure it's full of smoke. And then he's actually going to go in there. And he's going to throw blood on this part and that part and that part. And he's going to back out, right? You're familiar? You know? Yes, not every, so I know. Okay, not just Gentiles. You're actually ready. Good. All right. So they say that uh, one time when he was in there, he prayed a little bit longer than normal. So long 
that they went in looking for him. Unheard of. But they went in looking for him because they thought he went in. Bam! God struck him dead. Were they allowed to go in? No. I thought they tied a rope to his leg. Well, that, I've never really read that anywhere in the Talmud. That indicates that that happened. I don't know if it's a Christian tradition or something made up or what the okay. deal is. All I know, no, I've heard, heard that growing up. We've all heard it. We've all heard it. But we're all reading through the Talmud looking Public for it. Public tales. I've never read it yet. I'm still walking. I'm still walking. But the bottom line is, you're right. If he if he went into the, I mean, let's let's face it. What's he walking into first? The holy place. What's in the holy place? Three pieces of furniture. I guess my original question were was were more people besides him allowed to walk? Only back? one guy one time a year yeah. into the one place on the planet. So why would they go in looking for him? Well, you don't look in a place that's three foot by nine foot. I mean you don't have to look, right? If the body's down, you can reach under the curtain and grab it. The curtain's pretty thick, it's like a foot and a half thick, okay? But he's walking into the holy place, three pieces of furniture, what do you got? On the left, as you're walking. Menorah is seven lengths. On the right, table showbread. I mean, you got twelve loaves of bread on a table, and then right, the, uh, the bread of the presence or the face, and then straight in front of you, right in front of the curtain, the altar of incense. Now, is the curtain like the curtain that you see at the movie theater that opens in the middle? Yeah. Negative. We've got two curtains. On the right-hand side, we got a gap of about a foot and a half. When you walk into that, you've got about a foot and a half, two foot, between the front curtain and the back curtain. And you walk all along that curtain, and you got about a foot and a half on the end of this curtain that you can slip in. What's behind that curtain? It looks like a coffin. It looks like a coffin. He's got this weird angelic thing. No, it depends. This was the, I mean, the Ark of the Covenant was not in there for the second temple. That is correct. It was just the big stone that they got uh, right. But generically, yeah. before yeah. you bet. So he's walking in. It's not there. All right. So that's how it is. So he goes in. Goes in and does his deal. I'm sure he did what his business was there and wisely left, and probably was in the holy place praying. How often do people go in the holy place? Every day. Every day. They had to trim those lamps. Every day. But only one guy went in at a time. Well, Yom Kippur, he was supposed to be the only one in right. there. On Yom Kippur, he's in, in there, and of course he's going to go further inside there, and then come up. So, it tells a story of he prolonged his prayer to the point where they came in looking for him. They thought he died. Now, did they go all the way in? I'm sure they did not. But they found him again. Why did you, you prolong your prayer? What were you doing? I was praying that the temple might be destroyed. Wow. Really? And what happened? The temple got he was praying that it wouldn't be. One time he comes out and he says, I'm going to die this year. And all the priests look at him and go, how do you know that? No man in white has always, for the past 40 years, 
walked in with me and walked out with me. From Yom Kippur, when he walked inside. He said, this year, you walked in with me, and you stayed there, and I walked out by myself. Now, whether you believe those stories or not is irrelevant. It's just amazing that this guy had such, evidently, a commune with God, a great, great man. I guess you have to say, when, when any time a priest prolongs his prayer, that <laughs> priests <laughs> think <laughs> he's been praying way too way long. Too long. <laughs> That's a long prayer. <laughs> That's really standard. Yeah. That's right. So this is a great guy, and it, and he's the he's the end of an era. This is what Ezra and Nehemiah and the men of the great assembly built up. This is the last guy. And he is absolutely top shelf. Can you see that? The guy that followed him was Antigonus of Soco. He received the Torah from Simeon the Just. This is the first guy in the pairs. This is the first of the Tanaim. Which, by the way, you can notice his name is, is Greek. Yes. Which is now you can see the influence of the Hellenism already taking effect. Exactly right. And it's an amazing thing. Simeon the Just um, supposedly met Alexander. Now the dates get all weirded out, but they say that he actually saw Alexander and met him. And uh, the concept was that... Uh, When Alexander met him, he got off his horse and bowed down to Simeon. It was either Simeon or Antigonus. It was Simeon. It was Simeon. And he said, uh, and, and all his, his, you know, his, his officers are like, who is this guy that you're bowing down to? I mean, you're the king. And he said, this is the guy that I see in a vision before every single battle. This is the, one, this is the guy I see. Unbelievable. To, to add to that story, Alexander is making his push eastward to conquer, you know, what, what's now the Middle East and, you know, and, and on into India and so forth. And so he, he rides into Jerusalem. This was the first time Alexander had ever been to Jerusalem. And Shimon comes out to meet him and then you have this inter interaction and um, Alexander says you know, I've seen this is the guy I've seen in my, my dreams and then uh, Shimon ends up telling Alexander you are going to be vic victorious because part of the issue here is uh, Alexander kind of rides into Jerusalem sort of thinking he's, he's, he's going to He's going to take over. Yeah, he's going to conquer down. Jerusalem as he's moving east, right? But when he see when he comes out and he meets the the high priest of you know essentially the leader of the city, if you will, and he sees who he is, and then Shimon begins to tell him, "You are going to be victorious." Well, how do you know that? Well, because it's it's written. What do you mean it's written? Okay. And he he goes takes him through the prophecies of Daniel. Of how the ram, which is a picture of Alexander in the Greek army, 
would destroy Medo-Persia, which was where he's headed, right? And so, as the story goes, Alexander, because of this interaction, didn't conquer uh, Jerusalem, left Jerusalem intact, left it as it, as it was, and, and was quite grateful to, uh, to, to Shimon for you know, his insight, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, an it's a really interesting it, no, it's story. A great, it's a great interaction story. He had one proviso. I'm not going to take you guys out. I'll just leave you the way you are. But you need to promise me that all of the priests' sons will be named Alexander this year. And that's where you start getting Greek names in there on a regular basis, even at the priesthood level. Anyway, good story. First of the Tana Im. What's a Tana? It is the title of a sage at a particular time okay. period, but specifically, he time had to be—he be, had to be mentioned in the Mishnah. He had to be mentioned in the Mishnah. That's the time. So this is the first guy, Antigonus. It's the era of the Zugot or the pairs. Here's what he said in Avot One Three: Be not like servants that minister to their master for the sake of receiving a reward, but rather be like servants who minister to their master not for the sake of receiving a reward. And let the fear of heaven be upon you. What do you think of that? What do you think of his idea? Sounds like Yeshua. Spot on. Sounds like Yeshua. I like that. Spot on. Also like Paul. Yeah, like yeah. Paul. So we can buy into this. But wait. There's a problem. It all sounds good to us. And I agree with you. But what about the reward that is told to us in the scriptures? Somebody give me Deuteronomy 11, 11 through 14. It starts out with, if you obey. I see people tapping away. Deuteronomy 11, 11 through 14. Someone who's got a tinier Bible can just give me a little bit of this 26. 4. Is it called how the guy with pages beats yeah, the Yeah, there it is. There it is. He's got paper. Holy cow, yeah. Okay, but That's the land that you are going over to possess... Is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, and a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love Adonai your God and to serve him with all of your heart, with all your soul, I will give the rain in your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. I love that. I think I read that periodically, like <laughs> every day. 26, 4. Go, one of you. Then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. That is a promise for obedience. Yet Antigonus is telling us that we shouldn't serve for the sake of the reward. And yet the scripture is teaching us that there is a reward. Look at Malachi, Malachi's challenge. Yes, sir. I'd like to add before we go the. Uh about not doing it for the reward, but on the flip side, doing it so you don't reap the consequences as well. Like with Ethan, uh, and reading, when you do first chapter read, it's saying to remember all these things, remember all the good, but to also remember that if you don't do those things, the bad will come. Okay, okay. So Antigonus is saying, just do it out of love. Don't look to the reward. 
But there is another thing, and that would be do it so you don't get the punishment. I think that's what he said on the end, and let the fear of heaven be upon you. Exactly, exactly. What's fear of heaven? That's called a circumlocution, which means talking in a circle around something so you don't actually say it. What's he talking about? He's talking about God and the judgment of God. Exactly. Well, here's Malachi's challenge. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says Hashem of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more. That used to be like at least a three-minute sermon when we passed the plate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I mean, do you want God's blessing or not? Are we doing the gross? Are we doing the net? That's a, that's a challenge. That's God saying, look, if, if you would just obey me, because the tithe, the full tithe of the commandments regarding the tithe, if you would do that, I will bless you. I mean, there's reward. It's a guarantee. But I think, I think again, I think Antigonus is speaking really to a heart issue, right? So the scripture is clear. If you're obedient, there is blessing. No yes. question, right? The question is, if there wasn't blessing for being obedient, would you still obey? Exactly right. Exactly right. So do you think Antigonus was correct? Yes. I got a yes. Yes. The old guys are definitely yes. The younger yes. guys, yes. 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 <laughs> he said it. Mark that down. He said it. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's talk about Zadok. We'll take a break from Antigonus for just a second. I want to make sure you know who this guy is. So I gave you a couple of uh, verses here to teach you about, you read in your Bible, Zadok. Zadok. His real name in Hebrew is Zadok. I think it sounds more macho to say Zadok. Who's that guy with Zadok? Yeah. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah was the bad guy. This is out of 1 Kings 1.8. And he names all the folks that were not with this guy. Again we see, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You remember, this is David's son. He's naming himself king. These guys weren't with him. And then Zadok and Nathan proclaim Solomon as king. So Zadok's a good guy. I mean, he's got top-shelf credentials. So what happened in this period? We've got this absolute fire burning to keep the Torah, to not let this ejection from the land happen again, to put a fence around the Torah. And Simeon's this guy who's like talking with God. He's got like little white men walking around, these old guys telling him when he's going to die. It's unbelievable. And Antigonus steps in, next guy up. He's a righteous man. He's got disciples. This is in the same period as Tzadok. So, Here's what we read from Avot de Rabbi Natan. Antigonus of Soko had two disciples who used to study his teachings. Oh, that's mine. I hate that. <laughs> Stole my power and never gave it 
now we're running on reserve power. You didn't see it. I will. Oh, no, it didn't. Oh, can it? Oh. Is it possible? Yes. Oh. Didn't see it. It's still not seen it. <laughs> is the green light up? No. Is it plugged in? Antigonus of Soko had two disciples who used to study his teaching. They taught them to their disciples. What's that called? Discipleship. Discipleship. Thank you. Good. <laughs> it's tough when you got a tough crowd. You know? <laughs> and their disciples to their disciples. What's that? Whoa. <laughs> These disciples, who's he talking about? The disciples of the disciples of the disciples. They began analyzing the words of Antigonus closely, and they asked, well, why did our ancestors see fit to say this? What did he say? Don't look to the reward. Don't look to the reward. Is it possible that a laborer should work all day and not take his reward in the evening? That's not possible, is it? To the contrary, if our ancestors had believed in another world, the world and in the resurrection of the dead, they would not have spoken in this manner. What happened, guys? What happened? What did these guys just come up with? That there is no world to come. There is no world to come, and there's no resurrection from the dead. There's no reward for what I do. That's what they came up with when they read their masters, 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 words. Let me, let me see if I get this straight. They're reading what their teachers were told by their teacher and they're misinterpreting it. That was short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> and they came to a very, very poor conclusion. Now, guys, I know I've been talking a long time. What time is it? Holy cow, it's time to stop. I'll be done in about Ten minutes. Plug in right now. Plug in right now. Because this is what it's all about. Right here. These guys blew it. They missed it. They lost the message. They torqued it. They changed it. And all hell broke loose. And this is the beginning of the sect of Judaism, which is commonly referred to as Sadducees, because they were Sadukim, they were followers of Sadduk. They were the Sadukim. Sadukim. So all Hellenism broke loose? No! <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. All so, hell can't break loose. So no the, the, issue that the, the, issues, the issue that the Pharisees had with the Sadducees, well, there were several, but the key theological issues were the Sadducees said there is no world to come, and there is no resurrection of the dead. Because and there is no reward. And where did the, the concept of reward not being there come from? Antigonus. He said, don't, don't. It was a heart issue. But he laid it out on saying, paper. He's saying don't do it because there's not a reward. Right. Saying, don't do exactly. it because there is a reward. And they misinterpreted it. Why? Look what happened. They arose, these disciples, and withdrew from the Torah. We split into two sects, the Tzadukim and the Balthusians, and we'll talk about them some other time. 
It's a tradition among the Prushim, Pharisees. the Pharisees, to afflict themselves in this world. They did. They were very ascetic. Yet in the world to come, they will have nothing. That's what these guys thought. There is no world to come. There is no reward. Paul was arguing against this. If there's no world to come, if there is no resurrection, we are most to be pitied. We're nuts for keeping this kind of life. You know what? If there's no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow we're going to die. And that's it. We're done. Paul's arguing against this over here. Hundreds of years later, the master is dealing with these people. These are the guys who had him killed. No world to come, no resurrection of the dead. You decide. We're taught by the rabbis, according to the effort, so shall be the reward. What are you putting into your walk? You're just getting up every morning calling yourself a Christian? Is that good enough? Is that what you're doing? You rap? You pray? Do you do works of loving kindness? How many widows did you help this year? Do you know any? Has God brought any across your path? Did you help anybody move? <laughs> the servant does and will do whatever is demanded of him, irrespective of the master's response to his acts. You know what? My kids are like that. I'm a bastard sometimes. That's it. That's, I mean, there's no other way to put it, guys. I am unpleasant. I am not fun to live with sometimes. But my children always do what I say. irrespective of how I treat them. That's love. We should be, do the same for God, above and beyond. Which is greater? Service based on love? Or service based on fear? Love. Yes. Perfect love casts out fear. It's above. He said it's the same. Who said both? I said both. That's not, that's not allowed. You can't say both. Yeah. It's an or. Oh, no. I, I remember Josh teaching on this. It's, it's right. each, each it's wing of the bird. Exactly. Love and fear work together. They're both necessary, aren't they? Mm -hmm. You know, it's Shemayim, which is the fear, fear of, of heaven, heaven or the fear of God. Or, or, or punishment, but you know, it's Hashem is, is a different element. So I think maybe yeah, yeah. That's true. The, you know, the different shades of fear make exactly. sense. And I think that that concept of, of it's almost the idea of um, fear in the sense almost awe, accepted like right. but it's awe more than just like respect yeah. it's awe and realizing just how grandiose it is the closest I can think of this example is um, after we prayed the Shavuot prayers together um, last Shavuot you're going through this like hour and a half Shacharit <laughs> that's just the Shemona Yisrei um, and it's incredibly intense and the whole way through it's talking about how majestic and magnificent and awesome God is and by the time you're done it's like Okay, I'm never going to sin again. I'm never. a worm. I'm a worm. I'm nothing. <laughs> Holy cow, this guy is unbelievable. And it's not a guy, it's a god. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. I was hoarse by the time we were done. We had to read around the room. I just couldn't do it. It was incredible. Gentlemen, it's not an either or. It's a both end. And we need to remember that. Because 
Greg hit it on the head, and he's always nine slides ahead anyway. <laughs> Antigonus was concerned with the service and its motivation. It was a hard thing. Antigonus' focus was not on the reward, but he certainly did not deny that there was reward. It's just not what he was talking about. Gentlemen, I think we have a failure in our own world, and we can look back to this same period of time that Israel went through. It affected hundreds of years later, even in the days of our master, because of the failure of the people back then. We have allowed our independence to overshadow our compassion. And I'm speaking to you as Americans and to me. Without consistently promoting community, we have abrogated our duty to provide to the government. In the first one, we are lacking compassion. In the second one, we're lacking community. If we had community and promoted it, people wouldn't need to look to the government for assistance. They would look to one another. My parents grew up in the Depression. They looked people in their community for help. When one guy lost his job, which was pennies a week, the community supported him so he could find a way. By looking upon the poor with callous disregard, we have sown a generation of dependent citizens. Gentlemen, this is America. For this righteous right that lost the election, this lack of compassion, lack of community, and callous disregard is what we have sown. That's why over half of the Americans today are dependent on the government and see no reason to work for their food, as the scriptures demand. Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Adonai takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. In whom has half our country placed their hope? Shame on us. Why have they not placed their hope in the cross? Whose fault is that? It's our fault. Gentlemen, if you want to know why we lost this last election, it's my fault. You can blame it on me. If you do, I'll blame it on you, but <laughs> it is my fault. I have had a callous disregard for the poor. I have failed to promote community, even outside my community. So, what are the teaching Seemingly the just was an example to everybody, even the pagans, including Alexander the Great. I would say one of the greatest pagans in all of history. Shouldn't we be an example? We really should be. We should be an example to everyone of the right way to live. Not because we're stuck up, not because we seem to have the right answer all the time, but because we have a hope that lasts. We have a hope.
that is real. The culture always needs clarification of commitment, as did Antigonus's. They wanted to know, why are you living a righteous life? And he answered them, you need to do it because God says to do it. Don't look for the reward. Your heart needs to be right. He was ready to clarify. He was ready to give a an account of the hope that lied within him. Shouldn't we? Doesn't our culture need this type of clarification? I'm confident we're not doing it. If we were, they wouldn't be living like they are. If we fail to effectively disciple each generation, they'll make it up. That's what those guys did. Antigonus' disciples' disciples made it up. They just figured they understood what he meant. They went around. They got the message backwards. Gee, well, that reminds me of another time in history where the master wasn't around and the disciples' disciples made it up. Keep the Torah. Are you nuts? No, he kept the Torah so I don't have to. Jewish? Come on. They're having a pork barbecue. Do you see the similarity? It happened right there. It happened last week. Is your family and the people that you deal with clear on your doctrine and on doctrine in general? Or do they believe some crazy wacko stuff? Let me ask you. Do you think it's my responsibility to teach them? Well, whose responsibility is it? Everybody's quiet now. Would you get upset? <laughs> the priesthood failed in their responsibility to teach the people. We see it in the Mishnah, we see it in the scripture. And we see it in history. We're supposed to be a priesthood of believers, according to the apostolic writings. Every one of you is supposed to be, quote-unquote, a priest in his home. You are responsible to teach. You're not the riffraff. You guys are supposed to be the tzadikim. When it comes to, uh, is there anybody here like a brick? You ought to be standing up. You're the ones... You should be doing it. Who's going to teach the doctrine? The wives? The girls? You are. Do you know it? If you know it, get your butt up here and teach it to us. Not because we don't know it. Because we all need review. And you need practice. Take the practice. Get your butt up and teach. Pick a topic. It's our responsibility. How have you done at sharing doctrine with somebody? Be generous in the month of November. 20 days. How'd you do? How many took five heavy topics and brought three or five people through? Besides John. Besides John. <laughs> If we are upset with the way the world is, change it. 
And I'm convinced you can do that. If there's something, if there's something that you don't know or don't know how to do, share it. You're amongst men here who do know. And if we don't know, we will find out. The world can change. The world will change. We're just not the ones that are changing it right now. Why not? It's our job. We meet on Tuesday nights. And I'm thrilled. And I love this. I live for this. I especially live for the opportunity to sit on the couch and be taught. Fifteen, fifteen guys here? Step up. That's three months. I don't have to teach. Till Pesach. Practice. Do it. Step up. Practice here. My dad was a New York City fireman. He wasn't a great orator. He was a blue-collar guy. He went into New York City every day, and he sweat. He'd come home, and he was tired. He was a man's man. He was a regular guy. But he expected his sons to step up and speak the truth. And he would challenge us in front of the family. My mother, my father, my two brothers. He'd say, stand up. Teach us something. Anything I want. Dad, I don't know what to say. Doesn't matter what you say. You're in front of family. We love you anyway. Gentlemen, it's the same way here. You want to fall down and skin your knee. You want to do it here. Practice it. Learn it. Be able to articulate what you believe. And be able to do it with such finesse and confidence that it's as if you practiced it in front of 15 or 20 guys. Wow. What an opportunity. Let's pray. Good Father, we live in a great land that you provided for us. We pray that we would not have to live in this land, in fact, but that we might be given land in your land. That we might be given land in the Holy Land. Father, we pray for the return of our King. Feel like Robin Hood waiting for the return of the king. And in the meantime, we just got to pick up the slack. I pray, Father, that you would grant us great wisdom, insight, and that you would help us to be quick of tongue. That you'd help us to learn how to speak and articulate the truth in wisdom, with cleverness, and with gentleness and patience. That we would be able to easily deftly give an account of the hope that lies within us, as well as the biblical mandate to work for our food, to be able to stand head erect, not because we're wealthy, which you grant, but rather, Father, because we have worked and therefore are due the reward. The man who tends the fig tree gets to eat the fruit. Father, help us to articulate these truths to the people around us that just don't know. 
Give us wisdom. And give us chutzpah. We pray in Messiah Yeshua's name. And every man said, Amen. Amen. You can stop it.